we want to give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. We'll invite you to turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. And we want to read God's Word this morning under the heading of a lasting inheritance. A lasting inheritance from Ruth chapter 4. God's Word reads this morning, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And so I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of the people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy of the field field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redemption and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance and that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphrathath and be known in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Emnidab, Emnidab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, 
Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord, and may his blessing be upon it. My most dear friends, we get the sense that as Ruth is traveling home from her threshing floor meeting the night before in chapter 3, that she may be filled with both excitement and trepidation. And what I mean by that is there may be some hesitancy on her part. She is excited. She is received from Boaz in chapter 3 a promise of redemption. He says, I will not rest. That very next morning, I will do it. We will settle the issue of your redemption. But the only hiccup in the plan, of course, is there is a nearer Redeemer. The question on Ruth's mind as she travels home to Naomi that next morning is, who will redeem me? Will it be Boaz that mighty man of valor, that man of upstanding citizenship, the one who is both able and willing to redeem, or will it be this unnamed, closer relative? Now, even though at that point, the reader has not met this unnamed man, I think you and I feel the same. Surely this guy cannot be better than Boaz. It doesn't feel right. He can't possibly be the man for her after all of this experience with Boaz. But, there is someone else who has the first right of refusal. And so we see in chapter 4 a narrative shift. In chapters 1 and chapters 2 and in chapters 3, Ruth and Naomi are really the main characters, aren't they? Ruth is the one who does what Naomi tells her to do, and Naomi is sort of in the background, scheming and plotting a way to get her dear daughter-in-law married off to a new man. But here, in chapter 4, Ruth has already stated her need. Naomi has already enacted her scheme. And now it's up to the redeemers to provide for these dear women. Before we look at chapter 4, I want by way of review just to mention one thing. What is needed for these dear women? If you look at chapter 1, verse 9, Naomi tells tells us, and those two women, what they need is rest. Rest is another way to say permanence. In chapters 1 and in chapters 2, they were fine with just a little bit of food, right? Right? They were fine with just a little bit of protection. But here in chapter 4, the issue isn't just food. The issue is now rest. They want something that will last. Something that can truly satisfy. Something that Ruth and Naomi can rely on for the rest of their life. Just like when you buy something cheap and it inevitably breaks down and you have to go buy the expensive thing. So they have already experienced that which, that which is cheap. They've experienced the food and the protection, but now they want something that's going to endure. Something that's going to last. They want permanent provision for their lives. 
But what we're going to find out in chapter 4 is that the redemption of these two women is not cheap. Redemption is never cheap. But the Redeemer, and this is our lesson this morning, and I must admit I've stolen this from somebody else, but the Redeemer pays a high price to secure a lasting inheritance. Redemption isn't cheap, but a true Redeemer is willing to pay a high price for a lasting inheritance. I want you to notice this in three points this morning. The cost of redemption in verses 1 through 8, public redemption in verses 9 through 12, and eternal redemption in verses 13 through 22. The cost of redemption, public redemption, and eternal redemption from Ruth chapter 4. And so we move into our first point, right? The cost of redemption. We saw that there is a change in scene. Everything up until this point has also been in private settings, but here we move to a very public setting. Chapter 1 is on the road from Moab to Bethlehem. Chapter 2 is in the field. Chapter 3 is at the threshing floor. But here Boaz comes in verse 1 to the city gate. The city gate is a Hebrew idiom it's similar to what we would say in English. It's going to court. Here Boaz in verse 1, he's going to a public setting. And rather than going home after a long night of protecting his crops, he's going to court. And it says he sits down at the city gate, which in the ancient world was sort of a symbolic move. Sitting down in the city gate meant I'm here to do business. Every there, everyone there would have known He isn't just taking a rest. He isn't just sitting down. He's here to do business. But immediately as he sits down, it says in verse 1, this other Redeemer shows up who is somehow a closer relative to Naomi than Elimelech is. Just walking through the city gates, you get the sense in verse 1, this is sort of a surprise, right? And behold, this other Redeemer, it's almost like he's surprised to see him, right? I was just talking about you last night, and here you are. But to us who are the readers, we know that this isn't coincidental, right? There's a deeper meaning. We see God's hand here. The reader of Ruth knows that the night before on the threshing floor, Boaz had invoked Yahweh's name and said, I will not rest until you are redeemed. Here is Yahweh responding to Boaz's prayer. And so Boaz says to this other Redeemer, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. Now, one thing you may not notice here in your English Bibles is that word friend. I'm actually going to read to you a a, a sentence from Hebrew. Just two words. And I think you'll be able to get the sense of it this morning. He says, turn aside Poloni Almoni. Sit down here. See, the NIV and the ESV, they render it as friend, but you see that it has a sort of sing-songy sound, right? It has a sort of rhymey wordplay. In English, it would be similar to us saying, turn aside, Joe Schmo. Sit down here, John Doe. 
So much so the English, or excuse me, the Jewish Publication Society translates this as Mr. So and so. He doesn't have a name in this book. Which is interesting because everybody else who has a name in this book has a very important name. And he doesn't have a name because he is a foil. You're supposed to contrast Boaz with Poloni Almoni. Joe Shalom, Mr. So-and-so. And so, Boaz invites him to sit down and his curiosity is piqued. He sits down and the elders come, which constitutes a quorum. Court is in session. And Boaz puts the prospect of redemption before Poloni Almoni in verse 3. And he says, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And then if you jump to verse 4, if you will redeem it, redeem it. Yet if you know your Old Testament history, you know that Numbers 27 and Numbers 36 tells us that the Jewish people cannot actually sell the land, right? Instead, the selling of the land was more what we would call a leasing of the land. It's not that they could sell that property and then it would never be their property again, but they could lease that land to someone else to use that property. They couldn't sell that piece of land because when God gave them the promised land, He wanted every single person to have a portion of heaven on earth. He wanted every single person in Israel to have a portion of the promised land. And He didn't want the richest in Israel to own all of it, while the poor in Israel owned none of it. You remember the story in Numbers 21 of Naboth's vineyard. When King Ahab is looking at this beautiful garden, a beautiful piece of land, and he goes to Naboth and says, I will buy this piece of land from you. In fact, I'll give you way more than it's worth. And Naboth says, no, I can't sell you the land. Because, not because I might not want to. Not because I don't respect you as the king of Israel. But because it is the inheritance of my fathers from the generations. And so if you read through the book of Joshua, as you come to the end of Joshua, it will describe for us the allotment of the lands to each of the families. And that land was to be a perpetual inheritance for the families of those clans that they would always have a piece of God's promised land. It's a spiritual analogy. It's what we will receive in heaven. Everyone has been given a pledge of the land as a pledge of what they will receive in the heavenly Canaan. And so what would happen then when somebody leased the land is that the person who purchased the land, in a sense, would receive all of the crops and the produce from the land. That's why they can use that word selling. But then in the year of Jubilee, every 50th year, that land would go back to the family of the person who sold it. So that their children, that their clans, could then have a lasting inheritance in the promised land. But remember, congregation, that the whole town is awash with Naomi's return. 
Everybody's talking about it. They knew that she left Israel to go to Moab. And when she left, she had a husband, she had two sons, but she's come back and all she has is Ruth. What does that mean? That means when Boaz presents to Poloni Almoni the sale of the land, what is he thinking? There's no heir to the land. In Poloni Almoni's mind, if he buys this land, he won't have to give it back to Elimelech. So look at his response in verse 4. I will redeem it. He jumps at the chance. In his mind, this is a great deal. This is a, a permanent sale. He stands to lose nothing, but stands to gain everything at the expense of Elimelech. It's a great deal for Poloni Almoni, but it's a bad deal for Elimelech. For Elimelech and his clan, he would then have no par- portion of the land, no uh, perpetuation of his name. He would essentially cease to exist in Israel. But you can almost hear Boaz in the background in verse 5 saying, Ah, I forgot one detail. There's one thing I neglected to mention. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. And he's very clear about what this acquirement is. The widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. It's a package deal. You can have the land, but you also must take Ruth, a daughter of Elimelech, as your wife. And Boaz doesn't beat around the bush. He says that if you marry this woman and she has children, that means that the firstborn son of this marriage would not be Poloni Almoni's son, but the firstborn son of this marriage would be the son of Elimelech. That means that the son would receive not only his name, but the son in the year of Jubilee would also receive the property and all of the possessions of Elimelech and Malon, and Kilion. So you have this contrast. Boaz says on the threshing floor, I'm willing to redeem, and so and so begins to back out of the deal in verse 6. And what you see is that one is willing to redeem and follow the law out of mercy, and the other is only willing to redeem if he gets something out of it. Look at verse 6. You see him start to backpedal. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. He's starting to see all of the costs that are involved with redeeming this land. Not only does Ruth come with it, who's a mouth to feed, but then also Naomi's got to come with it. He's got to feed two people. And then if Ruth has children, he has to raise them as Elimelech's children. And then he has to give the land back. And not only that, 
he then he's got to raise this child as if it's his own child. So you can think in his mind, oh, now I got to go to soccer practice, and there's going to be school tuition, and there's I got to discipline the kids, and I got to clothe the kid, and feed the kid, etc., etc. I can't redeem it. It'll impair my own inheritance. What is he saying? He's saying the cost of redemption is too high. I can't redeem her. You see, for Poloni Almoni, this idea of redemption for him is for his profit. That's what he wants out of it. What do I stand to gain in redeeming? So it's not redemption that is his mission. It's profit. Now, in his defense, the Hebrew Bible does not actually necessarily say that he's doing anything wrong here. The chapter doesn't villainize him. But I love what one pastor said, the same one who gave me this theme, Andrew Spreensma. He says, what we should see in both of these men, in this contrast, is that both men were willing to obey the law but only one man was willing to obey the law out of love. That's the distinction. Only one is willing to obey out of love, and that one man was Boaz. So Poloni Almoni says in verse 6, take my right of redemption for yourself. He woke up that morning. He walked from the threshing floors, which would have been on the top of hills in the countryside. He walks from the threshing floor to the gates of Bethlehem, counting the cost. He knows that if Ruth has a son, that that son will not belong to him. He knows that he will have to raise the child. He knows that that field and the property and the possessions will go back to that child. He is being asked to make a great sacrifice for someone else with very little for him to gain. And what is his response? I will redeem it. I will pay the cost of redemption. What Poloni Almoni could not do or cannot do, Boaz stands in the city gate, or sits, I should say, in the city gate, and says, which you cannot or could not do, I will and I can. So you might look at this if you're an accountant, and say this is a financially unwise move. It's a bad investment. He stands to gain very little. Why would you do this? The answer is clear, isn't it? If we have read through the book of Ruth like we have. Because Boaz has a heart that has been transformed by the grace of God. That's why he does it. He loves Yahweh. He loves Yahweh's people. And he is willing to redeem at great cost unto himself. There's a wise word of application, I think, here when we read the Ten Commandments on Sunday morning or you think of them throughout the week, you consider God's words to you, does God want us to obey the law for its own sake? Or does He want us to practice the law for His sake? 
Sometimes we can be very tempted to get caught up in the, the, the do's and the don'ts, right, of the law. But why has God given His law? Have you ever asked that question? What is the purpose of His law? He has given His law, short answer, for your good and for the good of others. The law is for mercy. Christ said in John 14 that if you love Me, you will obey My commandments. So Boaz is praised here in this chapter not for bypassing the law or simply doing it because he has to, short-circuiting it, but he is praised for practicing the law because the law led him to love. The law led him to mercy. Remember Psalm 1, blessed is the man who knows the law. Blessed is the man who walks according to the law. Who incorporates it into their lives. Law keeping isn't just a pharisaical temptation, right? To do it to try to earn our righteousness. But the heart touched by the Holy Spirit seeks to obey the law for the glory of God and for the good of their neighbor. We see here in this chapter a beautiful declaration of God's law being good and accomplishing good things. Aren't we likewise called to love others? Not because we have to, but because God has first loved us. That's why we are called to take care of the widow and the orphan. It's interesting that this story as well has been mostly done in private settings, but here it moves to a very public setting. This public redemption. Boaz redeems Ruth before witnesses. You see that in verse, or sorry, chapter 4, verse 9. It says, Then Boaz said to all the elders and the people, You are witnesses today. Verse 10, You are witnesses this day. Verse 11, Then all the people in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses this day. Three times. It is proclaimed as a public redemption. Now, of course, in the ancient world, there was no judge, right? There was no legal official. There was no notary. No written contract. But there was no contesting this deal. In verse 7, it says that Poloni Almoni draws off his sandal and gives it to Boaz. And Boaz gives him his sandal. And this is not just a public contract of granary buying or whatever it might be, selling cattle, different things of that nature. But this is a public redemption. Boaz is clear with his intentions in verse 9. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that has belonged to Elimelech, all that has belonged to Kilian and Malon. But the center of his redemption, this is a very poetic book. In Hebrew, there is two 17-word sentences. And the center of those two 17-word sentences is these words. The focus of his redemption is Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Boaz's interest wasn't in the land alone. His primary focus was in redeeming Ruth. 
It's also sort of shocking here that he mentions her widowhood and that she's a Moabite. It's almost like, hey, Boaz, can you lay off on the harsh terminology here in front of everybody? But it's important to the story because he's saying, I don't care about her perceived deficiencies. I don't care that she's a widow. I don't care that she's a Moabite. I have set my love upon her and I want to redeem her. And how beautiful is this? In one speech, Ruth goes from the Moabite widow, she goes from that lowest rung of society, that bottom caste, the least of all, and in one speech becomes the wife of the mighty man of valor to a full member of the covenant community of Israel. From nothing to everything. From poverty to riches. She has found in Him rest. This is her rest. She is redeemed a child of Yahweh, redeemed in the Redeemer. And they're showered with prayers. They pray, may the Lord make the women, make the woman, excuse me, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Of course, through Rachel and Leah came the twelve tribes of Israel. They are praying that through her womb, God would build His kingdom on earth. They pray, may he act worthily and be renowned. Boaz is already that mighty man of valor as we've talked about in these last few weeks. They're saying, may he continue in righteousness. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, if you know your Bible history, you might say, you, no thanks. Tamar was the widow of Judah's son. She was childless, just like Ruth was. Her, threat, her future was threatened, just like Ruth's was. So Tamar disguised herself, you remember this in Genesis 38, as a prostitute, deceiving her own father-in-law so that she might have a child. Not a pretty story. But both of these women went out in an active pursuit to have a child and to have a future. Of course, Ruth will receive a child legitimately while Tamar deceived. Boaz was a gentleman while Judah was anything but a gentleman. But what they're praying for is that God would work through your children to play an important role in salvation. These women were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Of course, they didn't know how prophetic their words would be. God would work a wonderful manner of salvation Ruth. But there's a word of application here for even us today. And I'd like everyone's attention for just one moment. God cares for the Ruths of this world. If you are an outcast, if you are a foreigner, and you are an outsider, 
Don't only be astounded by Boaz's love and commitment to Ruth because it is only a small sample of God's love and commitment to the poorest and to the meekest of this world. He cares for the powerless. He cares for the downcast. He cares for the helpless. So you here this morning, you may not be the richest person in the world. You might not think I'm the, most, I'm the prettiest or the handsomest in my class. We surely are not the most righteous. But God's love for the poor and the helpless is not conditional upon your success in this world. Just like Ruth's love, or Boaz's love of Ruth was not conditional for her. God will set His love upon His people regardless of their shortcomings. Likewise, we as Christians are also then called to love the Ruths of this world, are we not? The Apostle James says this in his epistle, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. We can become people who are tempted like the Pharisees to say, that person is so far gone, so out of reach of God's love, I might as well not even bother with caring for them. They don't handle their drink well. They don't handle their money well. They look different. They're brash. They don't know how to behave themselves, etc., etc. But if God's love is not conditioned upon our success, Christian love should not be conditioned upon others' success as well. We are called as Christian people to emulate the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord to others. We are called to visit orphans and widows. That's a synonym for the powerless, for the weak, for the rejects. We're called to love them in their affliction. To care for those with broken hearts. To love freely those who may not seem worthy of Christian love. This is what the Lord did for us in our eternal redemption in verses 13-22. through 22. I'd like to wonder how Boaz broke the news to Ruth that he was her man. Did he go to her and say, I got the sandal. Did she jump into his arms? We don't know. Because the end of the story of Ruth highlights not the two lovebirds, but highlights the God who put it all together. And the narrator compacts about an entire year into a few verses. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then in verses 14 through 17, the narrative again does the sudden shift from Ruth and Boaz who are interested in their love. But the narrative doesn't focus on that. It focuses on Naomi. Often people have said this book could actually be more aptly even named Naomi rather than Ruth. Because while Naomi is in the background, she's scheming and she's plotting and she's 
discouraged and then encouraged and then discouraged again, the epilogue actually serves as a conclusion to her problem, Naomi's issue. The narrator skips past the marriage ceremony. It skips past the honeymoon all the way to the birth of their son. And as they hand little Obed to Naomi, the narrator says, look, not only was Ruth's singleness addressed, but Naomi's emptiness has been addressed. One of the main issues of the book is fulfilled in Obed. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. That prophecy, that prayer, is not about Boaz. It's about Obed. That little baby is the Redeemer. That child shall be to Naomi a restorer of life and a nourisher in old age. You see, through Obed, the family line would continue. And the physical needs of the women would be provided through her. Through him, excuse me. Congregation, I remember all the way back in chapter 1, as Ruth and Naomi traveled from Moab to Bethlehem, what were their needs? What did they need? Well, first of all, they needed food. But second of all, they needed a child. That was what Naomi said to Orpah and Ruth. Don't come with me. There's nobody here for you. There's no children to be born. God has provided for both of their needs in Obed. The women even proclaim that for Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, Obed is worth seven sons. Seven, of, of course, is that number that so often represents a wholeness or a fullness. Here we see this great prophecy, which is true for you and I today. Redemption is what completes us. Redemption is what restores us. Redemption is what makes us what we should be. While Moab keeps us empty, God and His Redeemer can make you whole. And so you see, finally in those last few verses, through this, not only was Ruth provided a Redeemer, but Israel was given a Redeemer. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amnadab. Amnadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Your ears should perk up at that last name. David. This was the time of the judges. There was no king in the land. But we get a foretaste of Israel's Redeemer to come. Through one pre-monarchy Redeemer, we get a foretaste, or excuse me, through one pre-monarchy's Redeemer's love of a Moabite woman would come the greatest king in Israel. David will be the representative head of an entire generation. 
of Israelites. But he's not the promised king. As great as David was, he is not the one who would crush the serpent's head. He's not the one who would redeem Israel. But yet he would be a catalyst of the soon coming prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. Christ, Jesus Christ on the cross, will do an even greater redemptive work than Boaz. As we fell into sin, the cost of redemption was so high. Our catechism says the cost of redemption would ever only be the Redeemer's blood. Christ, in His cross, secures for us a permanent, full, and free redemption. And as He was nailed to the cross, what does He say? I will pay it all. No no blood of bulls and goats could pay for sins. None of your or my death on the cross could pay for a single sin. Many men have been crucified. But the God of heaven Himself says, I've counted the cost and I will redeem my bride. So we conclude not only chapter 4, but the whole book of Ruth, don't we? It's a wonder of Hebrew storytelling, this book. You see there's these storylines that are overlapping and there's this change of scenery and this change of narrative. But what should we take away from this book? Yes, it's a story of love. It's a story of redemption. But I think the big takeaway is that it's ultimately a story of God's sovereign love. He is the one who's been in the background the entire time. He's the one who's led each character. He's provided for them. And now at the end, He puts a bow on it and says, I have provided for each of you and filled them up. The story begins when there is no king in Israel. There's no bread in Bethlehem. There's no family in Moab. But yet here, the covenant-keeping, all-sufficient God has not forgotten His people. And through Ruth, He's given her a grandson. In a few generations, He will give Israel her greatest king. And He will give the church her great Savior. It is God who has been faithful. It is God who has counted the cost. It is God who has said, I will redeem my people. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give You thanks this Lord's Day for the great redemption that has been given not only to Ruth in Boaz and to Naomi in Obed, but the redemption that has been given us in Jesus Christ. Even this old ancient story from thousands of years ago gives us that promised hope of a future coming King. It is in Him we trust and in Him we delight this Lord's Day. Pray, Father, if there be any among us here who have yet to put their hope and their trust and redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might soften their hearts, that you might bring them to yourself in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's in him that his name we pray. Amen.